with you in our series, and I know that sometimes with kids playing in the background, background a distraction, you know, you can be like, what's going on, what's going on? So s- try to stay as focused as possible. Um, they're okay back there. They're just playing a little bit. Yes. No, thank you. Amen. Amen. We agree. So we've been talking about something called the orphan mentality. Last week, um, yeah, purposefully, sorry. <laughs> thank you. Um, we've been on talking about the orphan mentality, and last week, We talked about session one was that orphans' identity is based on what they do, right? So they do something because attention, they want attention. And we're talking about orphans in the natural. I worked with street kids in Brazil, orphans in Haiti, and these were things the Lord was showing me about them. They crave attention because their parents never gave them attention. And we were designed, God-given designed, to need attention, so these kids were never given into it. They crave it, so they do things, good or bad, to try to gain that attention, to make them feel valuable. Because when someone gives attention, it makes you feel valued. Someone's paying attention to me. So we talked about how that looks in the church, right? We do things. We think position, gifting, talent make gives us attention and then makes us feel valued. And when those things are taken away from us, we waver, we respond in different ways, right? Either we try to do more things to get attention or we run from the situation or we get angry because we're searching for something. And the truth was that we have God's full attention at all times and he fully satisfies that place in us from Psalm 139. So he created us and designed us with a need to have attention so we feel valued and then he fulfilled it in himself, at all times. But if we don't realize that and receive it, we will search for it in other places. And God ex- has been showing us and exposing in, pla- in our hearts places where we've sought position or um, accolades of people to try to build us up. And the fact is, if they can build you up, they can also tear you down. 
um, when you're steady in God's truth and his love, you're unwavering. We are unwavering children of God. And the homework was to ask God what he loves about you and develop a habit of listening and saying, God, what do you love about me? What do you love about who I am? Um, we don't have time today to go into what maybe he spoke to some of you today, which I, I know Kayla told me some things that the Lord was speaking to her and maybe others of you heard some things throughout the week about what he loves about you. But it's crucial and foundational to every other piece, especially this next session we're about to go into. Because if we don't know his love, everything else is going to feel really yucky and we're going to push against it. But if we're grounded in his love, everything else will flow. And you'll know what I mean as we move forward today. So today, session two, orphans do not like correction and discipline. I mean, how many of us do? But <laughs> orphans and street kids do not like to be corrected or disciplined. Why? Well, they've grown up in a, in a type of situation. We're talking about natural orphans. They've grown up on the street. They've been abandoned by their parents. Many of them have been abused sexually, physically, verbally, mentally, emotionally, in every way possible. They've been abused and taken advantage of. So they do not trust anyone. They've built walls around their heart and their mind as a protection to not be hurt again. So when someone corrects or disciplines them, they think that they're just simply one step away from being abandoned again, being hurt, being rejected. In Haiti, when I'd be walking through the village, there would be mothers who would come up to me with a baby in their hand and say, here's my baby, please take my child. Or they would have a four or five-year-old next to them and say, please take my child with you. I can't handle it anymore. I can't do it anymore. I can't provide. And maybe that mother's intent was actually out of desperation. She doesn't have money for food. She can't pay for their schooling. So it's a desperate plea of a mother, take my child and care for them better than I can. But that's not the perception of the child, right? All they hear is their parents saying, take my child. That's rejection. That's abandonment. That means in a child's mind, you don't want me, and it's probably because of something I've done. I'm too much for you. I'm too much for you to handle. I've disobeyed too many times. So many of these kids, especially in Haiti in the orphanage, they were actually chosen from among their siblings to be put into an orphanage. A mom may have five or six kids, and she can't afford them all, or she can't take care of them all, or at one point she just had a breaking point and said, please, take this child. So does that child feel like they're privileged to have food and clothing every day? No. They thought, they think, wow, I was the worst among all of mine. I must be a terrible kid. Nobody loves me. It's a rejection. It's simply a rejection. And then they... <coughs> live out of that. So when you correct or discipline, it's like, great, I'm one step away from being rejected again. They're just going to throw me to the street also because that's ev everything they've known. Does that make sense? In Haiti also, when I first moved there, I was working at an orphanage with a bunch of kids and the, the it was a non-Christian place. It wasn't like they were teaching Christian values or anything. The leaders of it were two Haitians involved in voodoo actually. Um, but the, the, the agreement was that I would teach English twice a day to the community, and that included kids from the orphanage. And when I was in the classroom, I didn't speak Creole yet. 
and I, it was very hard. My first class was where kids from five years old to about 10 or 11 years old, and they, um, I would come in, and there's probably about 30 of them, 30 to 40 of them, and me, who doesn't speak Creole, right? So what a mess. I'm trying to speak, teach them speak it, like, to speak English, basic phrases, and of course, there's kids hitting each other, running around, and I have no idea to tell them to stop, because I don't know their language. So I'm getting frustrated. I don't know what to do. The director of the orphanage, she comes in one day, and she's like, I'm going to assist the class today. She sits down, and she has this long stick branch in her hand. And I'm like, oh, no. So the kids are already kind of on guard, like, oh, no, she's here. She sits down, and I start to teach. And these two little boys in the front, probably six or seven years old, start to kind of like hit each other, whispering. It's not that loud, but they're like starting to bug each other, just like kids do. And she, this heavy set Haitian woman, jumps, like leaps over the desk. I don't, I don't know, she probably didn't go over it. She went around, but it w in my perspective, it was like she threw herself at the child with a branch in her hand and starts whipping in anger without any, without paying attention to where she was hitting, who she was hitting, one of the boys got a slash across his face, started bleeding. She's yelling in Creole, and I'm standing there like, oh, no, this cannot happen in my classroom. I will not teach if this happens. So then she sits down. I continue with the class barely. I continue. The next th uh, after class, I go to her, and I say, listen, Evelyn, I, I don't agree with that. I can't teach if you're going to be in there pouncing on children with a whip and whipping them if they talk. Like, I can't do that. And she said, no, you don't understand. You're American. This is how we discipline kids in Haiti. They need to be taught who's boss, etc." And I said, Evelyn, will you give me one week? I'm going to just give me one week. And if I can find a way to discipline them in a different way, will you let me have the class? And she said, sure, but you're not going to be able to do it. So I prayed and prayed and prayed, and the Lord told me to that any time kids would talk, that they would have on the second chance they'd leave the classroom and not be able to come back to the English class. I did that, and kids immediately changed their behavior. Why? Because they are desperate to learn English. It it's the only way that they might be able to make some money in their country is if they become a translator for foreigners that are coming in. So it was like he gave me the perfect thing, didn't involve any type of whipping or anger. But imagine, Haitian kids are used to that. I saw adults, any adult can hit any child on the street in Haiti. Children don't have value. It doesn't matter who their parent is, if they have parents. If you see a kid doing something you don't think that they should be doing in Haiti, you are welcome to beat them, basically. You can whip them, you can punch them, you can push them, like crazy stuff. And it's very heart-wrenching because you know a child, yeah, they might act out, but they don't deserve a punch. They don't deserve to be whipped. That's not loving. That's not loving correction. But do you see? They're used to that. You correct them, you raise your voice with them, and immediately they're cowering in fear because they think that you're about to whip them across the face and it could be potentially very painful. So they, they respond in a couple of different ways. They cower in fear. 
they take it as a direct attack. This is the main one. They take it, they take correction as a direct attack because what their identity is based on what they do. Their values and what they do. So if you're correcting what they're doing, you're actually attacking them, they think you're attacking them who they are. Major difference, right? So because my identity is wrapped up in what I do, you correct me, you discipline me, and I'm like, ow, you're hurting me. Why do you hate me? Why don't you like me? And I heard those phrases a lot. When I would discipline or have to correct, they'd, they'd immediately go from Wesley loves me to Wesley hates me. Wesley doesn't like me. Oh, you just hate me. You don't love me. You always this, you always that. Why? Because they're trying to protect themselves. You have just hurt who they are because their identity is based on what they do. So they put a wall up. Don't hurt me or I'm going to hurt you. And the way that they try to hurt me is by exposing all my faults where they think that I'm not good enough. And they would. It was like verbal abuse <laughs> from children. But thankfully, I was grounded in the love of God. There were days. You know, it's over 100 degrees. You're eating cornmeal twice a day and it's hot, and you're tired, and not sleeping at night, so there were certain days that I was like, you better stop telling me my faults, <laughs> or I don't know what I'll do, but, but it was a natural response, you know, they weren't trying maliciously to do anything, it was coming from a deeper place, where they've had to build up a wall, I need to protect myself, I need to protect my mind, and my heart, and my emotions, so if you correct me, I'm hurting you back, as my defense, so two of the main ways it would happen is either in anger and rebellion or silence and hiding. It was always seemingly in these two extremes. So I'll give an example. There was this girl, Dina, and Dina's about seven years old at the time. She was about seven or eight years old, and she and this other girl got in a big fight, and one of them had found glass somewhere. They cut. They were calling each other names. One of them was goat in Creole. That's a real mean thing to say. Oh, you look like a goat. And so they got so mad, and I had to pull them aside. The discipline was that they had to each write ten things that they liked about each other, right? Because you're saying bad things, you're going to have to write good things. Well, we sat there for an hour before the first girl finished with her ten things. And guess who that was? Not Dina. It was the other girl, and I had her come up. She had to read them out loud to Dina, and it was painstakingly. She was like, and I like this, and I like this. But she did it, and then she left, and Dina stayed another hour, and then another hour, and then finally I talked to her again. Dina, do you want me to help you? I can give you some ideas because I really want to go back also. <laughs> I don't want to stay here down with forever. And she all of a sudden snapped. Now, Dina started flailing and hitting, and I'm like, great, I don't, I don't know what to do. So I was at a different house. I pick her up. She was a scrawny little thing. I pick her up, and now I'm trying to walk up the mountain with her, like, over my shoulder as she's hitting and screaming, and she's, like, seven, eight years old, so not small. She's, like, Beth's size, and I have her over my shoulder, and I'm like, hi, neighbors. Like, they're all laughing at me because they know that I wouldn't hurt her, but that she's going crazy. So I bring her up. I bring her into her room. I call another Haitian director in, and she's, she's taking the, the clothing boxes of other kids and throwing the clothes everywhere. She's grabbing. They had these thin mattresses with plastic over them. She's grabbing it, 
biting it with her teeth and ripping the plastic off of the beds. She's throwing the mattresses across the room. Not exaggeration, this is for real. So I pick her up, me and this other Haitian guy, he's about 6'3", six 6'4", six big, 250 pounds, big guy. We put her on a bed and we have to hold her down. And I'm thinking, this is causing trauma. I don't know what else to do. Like, uh, if I let her go, she's destroying everything. If I don't, she's screaming here and we're holding her down. Like, that can't be good. So I'm praying, God, help me, help me, help me. We were like that for about 45 minutes. A long time. It was a long time. Finally, I have this idea. Call this other staff member, Rennell. So I get Rennell in. He had been there since the beginning of the orphanage starting. He'd known Dina her whole life. He comes in, he looks around, he's like this short little Haitian guy, small build. He looks around and he goes, Dina, and immediately she stops. And then he goes, pick up the clothes. And she starts crying and whimpering and picking up the clothes. And I'm like, what just happened? Like, how the heck did that happen? And he goes, put the mattresses back on, clean the beds. And she's just going around doing it. And then sh after she was done, she he comes over and he goes, you're undisciplined this whole week. You're doing chores. You're doing everybody's chores and you're on your bed the rest of the week. Okay. And I'm like, what happened? And then it clicked as I was processing through the situation. She knew Rennell. She did not know me. I had been there only a month. She had no reason to trust me. She had no reason to believe that I wasn't out to hurt her or reject her like so many other people had. Rennell had known her her whole life, and she had built this place of trust with him that she knew he wasn't going to beat her. He wasn't going to hurt her. She could trust him. Do you see how that is? She needed someone she could trust, and I was not that person. And all of a sudden, I realized I need to build trust with her, show her that I love her intentionally every day so that she can receive correction and discipline from me when the time comes again. The other side of it was silence and hiding. Marilyne, she was about 15 years old. I had to correct her one day. I can't remember about what, but I did it quick. It wasn't a big thing. And then I go walking, blah, blah, blah. The next day I come in and every morning I would kiss and hug all the kids, make sure, hi, good morning, I love you. That was what they all got. Well, Marilyn was nowhere to be found. As I'm going around, I all of a sudden see her hiding behind a door, peeking through the little crack. And I'm like, and then she would see me and then pull away. Like she wanted to be seen, but she didn't want to be seen. She wanted to be seen, to know she had my attention, to feel valued. She didn't want to be seen because she was manipulating me to try to feel bad for having corrected her. So I'm going around, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to handle this? And the Lord says to me, go smother her with kisses. I'm like, okay, I can do that. That's th thankfully an easier thing to do. So I go find her. She's about my height, thin little thing. And I just grab her face and I start kissing her. And she goes, mom, mom, stop it, stop it. Like she was angry at first, but then I just kept going. And she started laughing and then said, stop it, stop it. And I said, I love you. I love you. And we talked through what had happened and she was fine. She was running from me, hiding from me, because I had hurt her with my correction. It was a rejection to her. And she didn't know in that moment if I really loved her, if I was going to throw her out. So she was hiding to see what would happen, to try to protect her heart and protect her mind. 
And what, what broke it? Love. Lots of little kisses around her face. So those were, it's a manipulative tactic. Uh, she was doing that because she had trained herself to do that. It was a protective measure. But it's manipulation, right? She's doing something to try to make me feel bad. And this happened all the time. I would correct, kids would either lash out in anger, they would go into silence and hiding, they would start telling me all the terrible things about who, what they think about me, which they didn't really think those things. Again, they feel attacked, they're going to attack. If you don't feel attacked, you're not gonna try to defend yourself. You only defend yourself when you feel under attack in the way of defending, like I've gotta defend who I am, right? So that's how it looks in, oh, one last thing. I, had a, I was in a school in Brazil called Children at Risk. There were nine students from seven different nations. It was a very intense course where we learned to work with street children because in Brazil there are kids all on the street, no parents, it's very heartbreaking. It would be like Beth having no parents and on the street by herself with a lot of bad people around. Like no protection. And how vulnerable is a child? Juba, think. There were kids Juba's age begging for food on the street. And people just walk by. They treat them the same way we treat homeless people. They don't even pay attention, right? That wouldn't happen in our country. So that ha we were in a, a class and we were talking about discipline for working with street kids. And someone, uh, the teacher asked a general question, who's okay with spanking? So I raised my hand, I'm okay with spanking. I got spanked, my mom and dad spanked me and they did it lovingly and I don't remember ever being hurt by them. They would tell me what was wrong, tell me why I was gonna get a spanking, spank me and hug me and then I'm off. So I'm like, yeah, I think spanking's okay. And a couple people raised their hand and I remember my friend Glacy she broke into tears. She was crying. Spanking is not okay. You never should raise your hand to a child. I will never touch a child, blah, 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 blah. Well, what was her history? She had 30 years of living on the street. The first time she had told anyone about her trauma was when she met me the first day of school and she just unloaded a bunch of stuff. There was one time she lived in a foster care home the father was sexually abusing her. She was about 10 years old. The mother walks in one day on the father abusing her, and the father blames Glacy, says she was provoking me. The mother agrees with the husband. They lock her in a bathroom for a week and just go in without food, water, occasionally going in to beat her. That was one of the many many traumatic stories of her life. So do you think she'd be okay with spanking? Absolutely not. Why? Her experience told her something totally different. N that's never done in love because of what I've experienced, right? They've never experienced healthy discipline. So why would they think discipline's healthy? They don't. They don't. There's such a fear of it. There's a fear of rejection, fear of abandonment. So. I painted a picture for you. I think you get the idea of how it is for kids on the street and why, right? You get it? Do you understand? Do you feel like you understand a little bit why they would push back? So how does this look in the church? 
some would say in the church there's not even a place for correction, which is kind of laughable because the Bible has a ton about it. But some would say there's not a place for correction within the body of Christ, but this is simply an orphan mentality. It's based out of fear. Number one, it's not supported biblically, but number two, it's an orphan mentality from the way we used to be outside the family of God, right? Not used to being told what to do or having anyone challenge us, correction, discipline. No, that's all bad stuff. It means I'm not good enough. It means I don't have what it takes. It means I'm failing. Well, that's not true within the family. Correction and discipline is a beautiful, wonderful, God-given thing. So when people say that, it's usually out of fear, fear of being hurt, rejected, abused, and controlled. A fear of being controlled. Correction, discipline, and counsel are safeguards for us from God. They are from God, and we're going to look at a lot of scripture concerning it. Sure, correction, discipline, and counsel are safeguards for us. So why, why we're going to look at in the church, why do we reject it? Why does it hurt so bad? Number one, we take it as a direct attack, just like the orphans. Because our identity is based in what we do, when what I'm doing is corrected, you're attacking me, who I am. And it hurts. And so I'm going to respond in two different ways. Usually anger and rebellion or silence and hiding. So I'm going to give a bunch of examples because you all know the examples I give of in the church is my life. Because I lived like such an orphan for so long. And I still do at times. I still need to renew my mind. Putting off the old and putting on the new. It's a constant thing that we do, right? The Bible tells us, put off the old, which is the orphan mentality. Put on the new, sonship. We have patterns of thinking, patterns of doing that need to be renewed by the word of God so that we act differently. So we take it as an, a direct attack. My identity is based on what I do or where I find value. So wherever I'm feeling valued, say I feel valued on the worship team, which has happened to me when I first joined Street Life, I started playing guitar. I was leading worship for some of their prayer sets, and I thought I was the best of the best of the best. I was 18 years old, and I literally thought, like, they've heard no better worship leader than me, being completely honest and blunt and vulnerable about my weaknesses. Well, the director of that ministry saw that and knew that, and so he approached me as a father, and he said, Wesley, you're not going to lead worship for a while. And I'm like, what? Why? And he said, because there are some character things that I believe that God wants to work on in your heart. And can you imagine hearing that? What went on in my mind was, who are you to sit? I didn't say any of these things out loud, just on the inside. You know, I'm too scared. Who are you to say that to me? Who do you think you are? You have all these failures. Does that sound familiar? like the kids pointing out all my failures when I corrected them, immediately I'm thinking of all his failures. And wow, how can an imperfect person correct my imperfections? Who's correcting your imperfections? Because I really want to right now <laughs> is how I felt. I really want to tell you what I see in you. 
Well, that's not real humility. That's a lot of pride, a lot of arrogance, and it's a lot of protective measures, right? So thankfully, he did that for me, and I learned a lot about that my value was not in worship leading. My value was not in preaching. My value was not in any ministry I could do or anything that I could do. My value was in the love that God had for me, period. The attention that I had from him, period, as his daughter, when I had gone there, too, Josiah was a good friend of mine in this time also. Right before I left for street life, we had had this encounter with God, and I started moving in the prophetic like never before. I don't know how to explain it. God was giving me very accurate, specific words of knowledge, words for people, and I was just bursting at the seams. People were coming to my mom's house to be prophesied over by me because there was something on me at the time very specifically. It was supernatural. I had people calling my mom's house. They wouldn't let me hear their voice. They wouldn't let me, they wouldn't tell me their name and they just wanted a word. Pure. And all I would hear on the other line is people falling to the ground and crying. So, right? That's amazing. God is so good. He loves his kids and that feels good. But for me, with all the mentality, the orphan mentality that I had, and the arrogance I had, I thought, whoa, I must be something special. People need me. People are coming to my house because I have a gift. I felt the attention of people was on me, so I felt very valuable. I'm giving words from the Lord. I feel very valuable because my value was caught up in what I was doing. So I go to Street Life and I'm still moving in some of these things. We have this night with the girls in the apartment, and we're worshiping, and the presence of God was there, and I get this word for both of them, and I got one specifically for a good friend of mine, Carol, and I say, Carol, the Lord says you are going to move, that he's going to give you your own apartment, your own place to live, because we were all living in one community house. And she's crying. We're all crying. It's all emotional, and it's like, wow, God. Well, the next morning, I go into Street Life, where we were working, and David says to me, Wes, um, Robin and I would like to, which is his wife, Robin and I would like to meet with you in the office later today. Oh, I'm thinking immediately, he said, meet in the office. My heart's going, oh, no, I'm in trouble. Now I have five hours to prepare. How am I going to respond they're, they're going to tell me what I did was wrong yesterday, and I have to, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm afraid. I'm scared. I'm already on the verge of tears. Does that sound like sonship to you? I didn't even know what they were going to talk to me about, right? So I go into the office, and I sit down, and I'm trembling, 18-year-old Wesley, trembling. Hi. And he's saying, so they ask, how's your time? I'd only been there about a month, three weeks a month. So how has it been here for you? so far. I burst into tears. Oh, it's been so hard, and I don't have anyone my age, and I went and cried about something for 20 minutes, really just trying to buy time and hopefully make them feel bad for me so that they'd lighten the blow, right? So it was actually manipulative, and I was scared to death, so I cried to make them feel bad. You know, our tears sometimes can be manipulative to people because we're afraid of what they're going to say. So we try to make them feel bad so they don't say what we think they're going to say. Well, thank God David and Robin were not manipulated by me. And they said, oh, we're so sorry. Oh, how can we help? Blah, blah, blah. And then they go. 
So we want to talk to you about something. Last night in the girls' apartment, you gave a word to Carol. I'm like, great, here it comes. And I'm just sobbing, like <laughs> that type of crying where you can't catch your breath. <laughs> and he goes, and uh, we just want to let you know, Carol is not meant to have her own apartment right now. She needs to live in community. God is doing something so specific in her life. And if you had come to us, her leaders, first with the word, we could have told you that because timing is just as important as content. Timing is just as important as content because we might receive something from the Lord and say it completely out of timing. And so I'm sitting there, and I had had no training on the prophetic up until that point. He, I left his office with a book of, like, about five books on prophecy and prophets and the prophetic. Thank God, too, because I like to read, and I went and ate it. But first, I went back to my room with all these books. I sat on my bed, and I cried a hard cry, and I said to God, I made a vow. I said, God, I will never prophesy again because I could mess somebody's life up. Oh my gosh, I just did something so wrong and blah, 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 blah. What is this? Silence and hiding. I'm gonna give up prophesying because I have a fear of failure. That was the root of that. I have a fear of correction. I have a fear of failure because when I fail, someone corrects me and it shows me that I'm not perfect and I wanna be perfect. I'm getting at the deep stuff, right? Yeah, you're welcome. And I still go through that, right? It's hard. We want to be perfect. It doesn't feel good when someone corrects us because corrects us we go, I'm trying so hard, though. Well, it's okay. Great. You're trying so hard. That's not the point. Correction and discipline is to make us like Jesus. It's a beautiful, God-given thing. It's not a negative thing, but our orphan mentality rejects it as negative. And we say it's not good. It's attacking us. It's hurting us, and I have to hide, or they're going to give up on relationship with me because of correction and discipline. We can also... Um, have outbursts of anger and rebellion where we do just start like I did in my mind with David. Well, sometimes it comes out of our minds and out of our mouths and we start to all the faults and failures of the person who just corrected us. Um, so this could happen. Either I start to put myself down like I did in the closet room. I'm a terrible person. I'm never prophesying again, blah, blah, blah. Or I start to put the person down who corrected me and say what you said had no value because of all your imperfections. Basically what this says is I only want Jesus to correct me because Jesus is perfect. I don't want imperfect people correcting me. I don't want imperfect people disciplining me. Jesus is perfect. I'll leave the correction up to him. But really, the truth is what comes out of us Pay attention to this. What comes out of us during correction reveals our lack of maturity and understanding of his love. What comes out of us during correction and discipline reveals either our maturity or lack of maturity and, either, and our understanding of his love. 
if we respond in anger and rebellion, if we respond in silence and hiding, that shows that I do not understand his love. That shows that I'm functioning as an orphan. That shows where I'm at. Nothing about the other person. And the Bible shows us that God uses people often to bring correction, discipline, and counsel. Read Proverbs. We're going to read some scriptures now to, to kind of seal up the thing, seal it up with truth, right? And we need to renew our minds with truth. The important thing is you have to be hearing what God loves about you regularly. You have to be grounded in his love because if you are, when correction comes, you're it's still hard, but it's a lot easier to receive, right? Because you know he loves you. And so if he's allowing correction to come to you, it's out of his love for you. And because you've asked to look like his son, Jesus, you asked for it. I'm just going to leave that there. You asked for it. So Hebrews 12, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. And have, this is uh, possibly Paul writing to uh, well, they actually don't know who the author is, but they think it might be Paul. Apollo, some it's debated. <laughs> but anyway, he's writing to the church, right? So he says, have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? So again, he's talking about sonship. You're in the family. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That seems pretty clear. The father, if you have a child yourself, you're going to discipline that child because you love them and you want them to become a decent, good individual, a human being that loves people, right? You're doing it out of love. The father, much more than that. You know, we have a, we can be angry. We can discipline out of anger sometimes because we're human. God doesn't do that. He gives us discipline because he loves us, because we have something inside of us, a rebellious nature, a sin nature that has been bought and paid for. But we still have ways of thinking and doing from our own mentality. So the Lord in his love is saying, oh, wow, you're off there. Redirect. You're not acting like a son or daughter. Redirect. That wasn't really good. Redirect. I'm making you mature sons and daughters. And the fact that he says, do not faint when you're reproved shows it's not easy, even when it's coming from the Lord. Don't faint. Do not faint when you're reproved by him. Don't give up. Um, I want to go to Proverbs 12, verse 1. This is one of my favorite scriptures. Hmm. Some know what's coming. Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline 
loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. See why I love it? Because the Bible just called us stupid. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates reproof is stupid. Now, I want to clarify this. We're ending with these, this point, these points, these scriptures. I want to clarify something here. I just had this happen to me these past days, actually. Someone was believing that they were correcting my theology, that there wasn't really even anything about my theology in the post. But they, they ended up private messaging me saying that I, they believed I was in error and wandering from scripture. So I dialogued back and forth with the person. It's a friend. And what it came down to was, hey, this is one person who's seen a Facebook post who's not even in my life, my immediate circle. How would they know if I'm in error and wandering from scripture? I'm submitted to leaders, and I'm in groups of other leaders that would quickly point out to me if I was in error, and I welcome it. I welcome my leaders to point out anything in me. Josiah is one of them. Tommy is one of them. I mean, any of you, if you felt anything, I would welcome you to come speak to me. But I do, I'm submitted to leaders who would speak that to me. I believe this scripture is talking about this. Say someone comes to you and says, hey, you are really arrogant. And you're like, "Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not arrogant. Well, you could reject it the first time. Say another person comes up and tells you that. Doesn't mean they say it in love. Doesn't mean they say it like with the heart to to build you up. Well, say five people tell you and you still reject it. You're stupid. (laughs) You are stupid. God is sending multiple people to tell you the same thing and you're rejecting it. That's why a mature son or daughter, this is really hard, but it's something we should practice. We can separate the content of correction and discipline from the emotion that I'm feeling. So, oh, that hurts that you just said I'm arrogant, but I'm going to try to separate what I'm feeling for a second and think, okay, you think I'm arrogant. I'm going to take that to the Lord. Father, am I arrogant? Show me. Wow, I repent if that's in me. How easy is that? He's making, if I recognize God is using people to make me like Jesus, I should desire it. I should welcome it. I should say, hey, bring it on. It might be hard, but I'm going to become like Jesus. I'm going to look like him. I'm going to talk like him. I'm going to sound like him. If that's our goal, then we can go after anything. We can receive anything. Correction can come from a non-believer. It can come from a child. It can come from believers. It can come from anybody if we're humble and if we have ears to hear. The Lord will use anyone because he loves us. He'll use your spouse on a daily basis. And that's the person where you want to say, well, I see all your faults. Who are you to tell me that? Mm. Well, that is the <laughs> Maria. <laughs> that is the orphan mentality. That's not how we want to look or act. Take it before the Lord. I'm going to end with these two scriptures. Proverbs. There's so many more. There's so many more in this. Proverbs 6, 23. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light, and reproofs for discipline are a way of life. Reproofs for discipline are a way of life. They produce life in us. And then Psalm 141, 
Psalm 141, verse 5. This is awesome. Let the righteous man smite and correct me. It is a kindness. I love it. <laughs> Let the righteous man smite and correct me. It is a kindness. Oil, so, so choice. Let not my head refuse or be discouraged. David knew it. He said, let them correct me. It's an oil. It's kindness to me. Let my head, my mind, my thinking not refuse it or be discouraged. He understood. He understood. So the question is this week, who corrects you? Who do you receive correction from? How do you respond? Are you acting like an orphan who's constantly ready to fight, defend yourself, prove that you're right, protect yourself from being hurt? Kayla, can I share something about our relationship? Yeah. So something with Kayla and I, I love Kayla dearly, Miss Princess over here because it was her birthday a couple days ago. Yeah, so when we first, we didn't know each other a ton. They came to church here, and there was something that, I'm not even going to bring up what it was, but I had to say, hey, I don't think this is right. I think you guys should do this, or we talked through something. Well, it was through a text thing, and I remember Kayla texted me back, I really don't think this is going to work anymore. I don't think you're the one God has for me. So I pick up the phone and I call her. And I keep calling her until she picks up her phone. And I go, Kayla, what the heck are you talking about? And she goes, well, blah, 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 blah. And I said, no, 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 not in this relationship. I love you. We don't break relationship because we disagree on something. We can disagree. There's conversation. But because of her experience, and this is what she explained to me, because of her experience with other friends, when they disagreed, they broke relationship. It's just how you do it. You don't talk anymore. You don't go there anymore. Hey, that's not right. That's not mature. That's not godly. So we're doing something different. And it works. Do we still get hurt? Yeah, it might still hurt. It might still be hard. But the relationship will never break. It only goes deeper because of the love of God and because we understand it's love. It's love. And when we forget it, we remind each other. It's love. This is because of love, right? We have to remember that. So this week, again, the homework. What does God love about you? Because you need to be overwhelmed by his love on a daily basis. Number two, when was the last time someone corrected you and how did you receive it? If you aren't receiving correction and discipline from somebody, who can you ask? Who can you ask? I go to Sean. I've asked Josiah before, Crystal. Do you see anything? Here's the situation. This is how I responded. Was that okay? I ask because I know I don't see everything, right? We don't see everything, and I want to become like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Jesus, we love you. We're so thankful that you are a father who disciplines us because you love us, and you want the best for us, and you're making us like Jesus. So I pray a great grace over us as a community to receive correction well, discipline well, to be true sons and daughters, maturing in our ability to receive what you would have for us and to change to be like you. We love you so much and thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen.